This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast features Bill Mathias. It was recorded at Old Republic Distillery in York, Pennsylvania. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Feel free to reach out to Old Republic Distillery and let them know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. He's Bill Mathias. I'm Rich Sheen. Dawn Ranieri's here, and this is Fermented Adventure, the podcast. Bill, I'm so excited. We've been, we, we, we drove a couple hours to get here this morning. We're looking forward to sitting down and talking to you. We're in this amazing, this looks like, it, you've got this so detailed and so dialed in, and, and I get a sense from talking to you about just, just your mindset for setting up this whole distillery and everything else, but how did all this get started? How did Old Republic Distillery get started? Old Republic Distillery is a very interesting story to start with because, uh, Personally, it's a passion. It's uh, something that at a very young age I, I got involved in fermenting a lot of different now, things. Now, when you said a young age, what, uh, what age are we talking about? Uh, <laughs> Birth? <laughs> for the most part, yeah. Um, actually, you know, biology was something that I really got into in high school. Okay. Uh, I got a complete set of encyclopedias and started underlining every biological, you know, term and tried to understand as much as I possibly could. It was the, uh, even at a younger age, I was fascinated. My uh, grandfather, my great-grandfather made homemade wine. So you have a history of, of, of some sort of fermentation in your family just yes. from the beginning. What, what kind of background is your family? Uh, you know, simple things. Um, dandelion wine. Okay. Watermelon rind wine. Uh, it was it was whatever happened to be around, and the, these folks grew up in much rougher times. They made alcohol out of anything they could get their hands on that could produce a sugar source um, or a flavor. So you had that exposure beyond the biology side of interest that you had. It was a family thing. You you had a curiosity and an experience with your family too, right? Oh, it sure was. Uh, you know, I was too young to drink, but it didn't stop me from wondering how you make this kind of stuff, because I knew they did. Uh, So as I grew up, I had an interest, and it was a lot of fun to, you know, pursue and get to learn a little bit more about what was going on scientifically. Um, At about 18, I actually made my first beer, and I was too young to drink, and I hope I'm not self-incriminating myself. Now, I I think the statute of limitations has run out on that. You're okay? Yeah, I'm 50 now, so let's... uh... And and since you don't have the beer in front of you, I think you're okay. Yeah. It's a good deal. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it was at a young age, and I started really getting into um, uh, fermentation and really how do you uh, – trying to understand how you take grain and 
make a sugar source from that. It was, uh, you know, it took a few times to get it right, but eventually you start understanding things a little bit um, better. Grapes and fruit and stuff are a lot easier if there's already sugars available. You don't have to convert anything. Um, so, you know, it's a lot easier to get started at a young age in, in wine. Uh, you know, my grandfather, my great-grandfather did that kind of thing, and I always, I was always intrigued with, you know, that kind of thing. Of course, it moved into how do we go about converting, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the regular corn, how do we do that? How do we make sugar out of that? And so, you know, other grains and, and whatnot, and you play with things, and eventually you learn enough to be able to do a, a half-decent job, um, which, to, you know, gets better and better over time. You, you start understanding things, uh, trying new things and seeing what works, um, study a little bit more, ask people. Um, you know, I had uh, family members that I could ask about wine uh, in particular, but, uh, you know, if you find articles. Um, was fascinated with Jack Daniels when I was young, very young. I remember opening a magazine and seeing an offer that if you sent a dollar and this particular piece of paper that you cut out of the magazine back to Jack Daniels, they would send you a, a, a label, all their labels going back all the way to really? the beginning of Jack Daniels. Okay. So I don't know how old I was, probably 12, 13 years old. And I got these labels from Jack Daniels. Well, I thought I was... Well, they actually, you actually printed everything legibly. See, what I would have done, if I would have done that, they would have gotten a slip of paper and a dollar, and they would just kept the dollar, right? I, I, you know, <laughs> you actually say, fulfilled them. You did something with it. That's great. Well, you know, Do you I, saw I, the labels I it out. Uh, no, I don't know what happened to them. I looked them, uh, looked them uh, tried to look at them okay. uh, and find them a few years ago, and I... I don't know what happened to him. When I got him, the, the, the thing I did was I bought some felt and some 8x10 um, photo frames, and I mounted them on the felt, uh, three of them per 8x10, and uh, some by two, depending on the size, and I hung them on my wall. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. Um, here, you know, I didn't really realize at the time that the passion that I would end up having for distilling later, but you have to think that it had something oh, yeah. to do with it. Yeah, there was there was some spark or some curiosity. Sure. So, have you been to the Jack Daniels Distillery? I've never been. Never to, been. Never been. Okay, so that's uh, when when this whole travel thing and it's it's got to be on your list and maybe hit some of the. I know, like you're a distiller, yeah. so you're distilling, fermenting, you're bottling constantly so you have to kind of fit it into your schedule all the time and uh you know back here in the operations side of things here at the distillery it's for the most part just me um so the mashing is done by me the the rd um which is really the fun part of it um, trying new things is me all the um distilling you know running the we have uh three stills here um running the stills making the products everything is is me. My sister is my business partner. She handles the business side of things. Uh, her and we have family members and friends that, that occasionally come in here and help us bottle. Um, so it's a very small uh, operation that goes on here. And like I say, in the backside, it's me and I, I tend to keep very busy that way. You're built at 18 years old. You're, you're, you're brewing your own beer. You're becoming more uh, experienced in all things fermentation. And as you said, hey, take the grains, develop the sugar, and then what? But where does the distilling side and, and, and how does Old Republic come into play? I'm 18, and I made a, 
corn beer. And there was um, someone that I knew that said, hey, I think that guy down at the end of the road has a still. And so I was very nervous. Uh, it was illegal to make uh, moonshine in Pennsylvania at the time uh, or distill anything in the, in the state. Uh, so I worked up the nerve one day to go ask the guy if he had a still. I told him I had made some corn beer and I wanted to make some... He, he patted you down, made, made sure there was no <laughs> wires or bugs on you, right? <laughs> no, actually, I'll never forget this day because the guy looked at me funny. Still to this day, I don't know if he had a still or not, but he basically told me, look, I don't know who you think you are, but it is illegal to distill in the state of Pennsylvania. And if you get caught, you'll spend the rest of your life in jail, buddy. So he wanted to set you straight, right? <laughs> he set me very straight. I was scared. Wow. Uh, the, 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 the corn beer that I made, uh, I actually tried drinking it. It was horrible. Um, you know, you, you kind of make things to distill and it, to go back and drink it like a beer. It was bad. It was really bad. Uh, so most of it, I think, got dumped out eventually. It, it was either that or it was going to spoil anyway. Um, we can only hack so much of it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, chalk that one up to a learning experience. Um, at that point, I was just about ready to go into the military. I really didn't have time to start searching for still or somebody else that could help me out with that. Um, and it went to the wayside. I went through the military. I got out. And when I came back to Pennsylvania, pretty much picked up right where I left off in my ambitions to try and ferment uh, different things. Uh, by that time, um, beer and craft beer was just starting to creep in. Uh, we're talking about like 1992, you know. Um, I really was fact. Yeah, Samuel Adams really started yeah. that revolution. Certain other right. breweries started. And then you started to see these microbreweries right. from just home brewing. And these microbreweries just started to pop up in the early, mid-90s. They really did. I was fascinated with that. I had to get my hands on as much as I possibly could to taste the differences of, you know, one style beer to the next. And if you remember, um, you're a little younger than I am, but uh, back That's in, a nice compliment yeah, considering I'm older than you, but that's okay. <laughs> back in the day, uh, beer was Coors Light. It was Miller. It yeah. was, you know, it was, and Coors, I believe at that time, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that they only distributed west of the, the, the Mississippi Mountains. or whatever. Yeah. 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 So I remember how big of a deal it was for some of my uncles to have a case of cores. Um, no, you, you drank, you drank Iron City around here. And, well, uh, you know, some yeah. people did. <laughs> don't, don't uh, get, sorry. I didn't mean to mean your well, beer no. skills. No, uh, your, hey, your palate. I had red, white, and blue. So, uh, I don't know that it gets any <laughs> worse than that, but uh, nonetheless, there are a lot of different beers back in the day um, that they were standard beers. As this new revolution of microbreweries came along, uh, I started tasting my first porters. You know, I started understanding that there was more to beer than what you know, Coors Miller and, and those types of things, and they're great beers. They were all great beers, but I was finding out that there were different things. Uh, a lot of the imported stuff back then, because there really wasn't a whole lot of microbreweries yet. But at the same time, the, the ones that were popping up and the people that wanted to go try them um, did have an opportunity to try some of the other things, like the English beers from the U.K., 
Um, yeah, you had some German beers, some German, English beers, and, sure. and different different types of things. That, right, you're right. Porters, sours, saisons. I mean, you can you can talk about that. Belgians. They were probably the Belgians. I mean, they were probably non-existent. I mean, they were there, but to to the general consumer, the access was very limited. Yeah, and and what there are some uh, monasteries in Belgium that had been making beer for hundreds of years. I didn't know that. Most of America didn't even know that at the time. You know, our, our resource for beer were the big breweries and the big companies that were putting out the things that we knew as beer in America. And obviously now looking back, everything transformed itself within about five to ten years from that point. We went from the choices we had to just amazing amounts of choices now. Every town has a brewery at least one. And those breweries are, you know, they're setting these small towns in America on fire with IPAs. Uh, the amount of hops and the appreciation that the, the beer drinker has now for hops didn't even exist before 1992, 1990. You know, I mean, yeah, it was one of the four main ingredients in German beer that, you know, that we knew about. But as far as tasting it, uh, we never really tasted hops like you do now. I mean, Trogues, you know, this uh, wonderful beer that they put together is hops, and, and it's fantastic. And it became almost a passion for beer drinkers and the consumer to find different kinds of hops. And what does that beer taste like? And what kind of hops are they using? And just the general knowledge of ingredients and all the things that go into making some of these uh, beers that you've never tasted before it became a passion for a lot of people. Nowadays, um, micro brews and exotic beers from uh, across the sea are very sought out. People understand them better now than they ever did before, and that's kind of if you if you really want to put the distilling, um, what's happened in distilling just in the last couple of years and where we're heading to, just look at that age in the brewing, uh, how brewers started making things that, that people never tasted before. We're, we're, we're seeing the same type of revolution happening. In Absolutely. Distilling. I have a couple of ideas. I mean, you, you said so much just there that there's a couple of different places to go here. But I, I guess what pops into my head is you have such a passion for beer and brewing. How did you not end up you know, being a brewer and opening up a, a microbrew instead of a distillery? Um. Believe it or not, I always just wanted to distill. Just, it, but it still goes back to just yeah. wanting to distill. I, I brewed beer for 25 years. Okay. You know, the, the basement brew on the weekend. I had the job, the 9 to 5, and I, I enjoyed what I did. You know, I always put a lot of passion into the things that I do. And I enjoyed my work. But really, throughout the week, I, I just wanted Friday to get there. Not because I hated my job, but so that I could dedicate time to making beer. You know, and making wine and doing the things that I really enjoyed doing. And it became such a passion that I knew that's what I wanted to do. Not make beer, but, but distill. All right, so take us to the distilling part. The distilling part is the best part. Um, you, you well, know, I don't know. We could, for, for all the beer drinkers, they probably want us to sit down and talk just the rest of the podcast about beer. Yeah. But, so there's a <laughs> lot of interest there. But distilling's the best part. So take us to that part. Yeah, distilling, it's. Um, uh, it's a lot harder than what I had originally thought it was going to be. I thought we'd just make beer, and I thought we'd put it in a still, and, you know, voila, you end up with whiskey, and it's not 
nearly like that. It's yeah, it resembles that, but there are so many differences, nuanced differences. Yeah, I mash differently. I don't make a lot of whiskey here. We make a lot of rum. Um, we make vodka. Uh, we make corn liquor for our uh, apple pie moonshine and things like that. We're just about ready to. And I, I just started making gin. Um, gin is a beast all of its own to learn, and, and that's that's a great example right there. I wanted to make gin. Thought it was going to be easy. Hey, you just collect a few things, right? Right. You, you throw them in some uh, <laughs> in, in a basket in, or in a basket. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and voila! At the end, you got gin. Well, I didn't really realize what I was getting into it at the time. I already had my hands full with the day-to-day operations here, um, but I wanted to try it anyway, which is really the best part about being a distiller is you get, if if you have the passion to do it, you get the opportunity to, to try so many things, and it's endless. Um, I can I know for a fact I can spend the rest of my life as a distiller and never get bored because I'll never know it all. Well, that's great because because look, I get so much energy from you right from the moment we met that you woke up today excited, and it doesn't matter what today is, you're going to be excited, yep. and and from there, I you know I, I get to the point. So the distillery's been open since when? We opened. Uh, our doors at the, the, you know, to sell our first product on March 3rd of 2012. All right. So 2012, there's a lot there because in 2012, we're 2020 now. You've celebrated your eighth year. You're probably one of the older established distilleries in Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of stuff that you had to go through, but you've been at this for eight years. Yeah. And you've already kind of answered my question, but the reality is what gets you up out of bed every day to go and mash and ferment and distill, what what it's it's the it's the variety or the the endless uh, opportunities you have, right? It really is. I mean, you have an opportunity to do something new every single day, and and it goes beyond that. As a scientist, as a science-minded person, I'm excited to find something new. A lot of days, if if you're if you're objective when you go to work in the morning and you're excited about one thing, it's that one iota of information you didn't know the day before. Even if it's just one thing, those things day after day after day after day accumulate into big things. Um, it's not just that you come in one day excited and bam, there it all is. <laughs> right. Um, and like I said to you just a minute ago, the greatest thing about distilling is the fact that you know for a fact that if you want to, you can learn and learn and learn and never stop learning. I can be 95 and senile and still be learning at this end. Well, let's there's hope you're not senile, Bill. Hey, you know, it happens. <laughs> as long as I can still distill, I think I can accept being senile. Okay. All right. Hey, look, some of the old moonshiners, man, they're doing it. They, who knows how it keeps, yeah, they keep going, but yeah. they do. It's just, you know, it's like a robot after a while. You just go to work. I, I just don't want to do that. I, I don't want to come into the distillery and do the same right. thing I did it, yesterday. It's not the drudgery. It's not monotony. It's and not. that's, that's a question because while this industry, the micro craft distillation, distilling industry is, is still in its infancy, same place as you, um, as you alluded to with the brewing industry, at some point it still becomes, oh my God, you know, today is vodka day and right. I've done this umpteen times and yeah. I got a bottle. I mean, there, I would imagine there are parts of this. As much as you love the process, as much as you love the discovery, there's still parts of it that you look at and go, that's not my favorite part anymore. 
Yeah. You know, it's like everything else. Yeah, I think that has more to do with things like distribution. Um, those types of things that really for a small distillery, and I'm not the only one, but if you look around, there's great distillers in this state. We're, we're getting a reputation in Pennsylvania for being van, uh, producing fantastic products. And we're, we're getting known around the country. There's some fantastic distillers in this state. Um, but I think we all run into that more or less a brick wall when it comes to trying to distrib- distribute your stuff you know, outside the state or even inside the state sometimes. You bring up a great point because I think, you know, I, I when you said that, I relate that to like um, trades, trades people, electricians, plumbers. Mm-hmm. They're great at what they do. Hands on, they can fix whatever you need to have fixed. But running a business, you know, getting out and billing and getting out and developing and growing their business, it's not their forte. No. And you make a great point that in this industry, especially where we are today with COVID and the changing guidelines and mandates, it's almost like there are areas of your business. Look, you can distill all day and make these great products and come up with something new for you, but you've got to get it into the lips and mouths and glasses of the public. And if marketing isn't your forte, like it may not be for many of the craft distillers, what do you do to overcome that or what do you do to work through that? Yeah, it's a big obstacle for a lot of people, not just in, as distillers, but like you mentioned, brewers, wineries. If you just start a brewery or winery or distillery and you have the passion to do it, I don't think that you really understand yet what kind of hurdles you're going to be jumping over in the future because marketing is a really big part of it. And, um, you know, I think once you establish yourself, you, you're, you're – making that uh, distillate, you're brewing that beer or wine, um, and you've been in business for a few years, I think you have, you've jumped over that first hurdle in that just existing and being in business that long in this industry is a big accomplishment. And plus it allows that, it takes that time anyway, for just your community around you to finally understand when they hear your name, understand what you do. And I'll give you an example. When we first opened up, that that first day, we opened our doors on March 3rd. For the next three or four years, it was every single person that would come in the door would ask us, so what kind of beer do you make? Exactly. What kind of wine do you make? Yeah. And we heard it nonstop, literally every single person for years. Now, I say that now, I haven't heard that for about five years now. Um, So it did kind of go away, but educating the people in our own neighborhood as to what we were doing was a hurdle of its own. We really had to overcome that. After a while, Old Republic Distillery, people understood, oh yeah, they make brandy, you know. Those are the guys that make apple pie, moonshine, and rum, and stuff like that. But it didn't happen overnight. It took educating the people around us in our very own community to understand that and then have that expectation. But getting over that first hurdle, it became a lot easier to offer a new product at that point because people, you know, they, they liked our stuff and then they would ask you after, Hey, you know, do you make gin? Do you have any plans to make gin? Right now? What's, what's next? Make that. Yeah. What's next? You know, Bill, Dawn and I talk about this all the time because I think you've, you've overcome that hurdle. And, and again, you're part of the, that, that growth and development of the craft industry in Pennsylvania and, and the country. But 
I think that next level is what Dawn and I see is when we go into a, uh, a restaurant or, or a bar or what have you, and we'll say, what, do you, what spirits do you have that's local? And then they'll start naming all the beers. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll start naming all their wines. So that's that next level. And we've talked to a number of craft distillers where it's, it's also a matter of saying, I'll have a gin and tonic. And they say, how about Old Republic gin? Right. Because their mind is, it's whatever is in the well or whatever's behind them on the, the shelf that you have to now say to that bartender, to that mixologist, you know, they know now that they're going to get a different gin or a different vodka or a different what have you to make a really great craft cocktail that now that customer is either going to say, all right, I want to make this my spirit of choice. Or anytime I go out to, the, to get a cocktail, I want to have this in here because it makes for such a great experience. Yeah, and, and that's another hurdle. Right. I think uh, that's that next hurdle. And it really is. Especially, again... It's a tough one. With what we're dealing with now, I mean, you either have to... You either, you're, you're, got, you're ready to drinks. You know, you can can it. You can bottle it. You can pouch it. So you have some control. And the restaurant's not so much right now. The bar's not so much right now. You've got this amazing setup behind us. I mean, I'll tell you what. For a small little distillery, this is a pretty big setup you have. This is... There's a, you got three stills... Yeah, they barely fit in here. I have to move things around. <laughs> when I mash, everything gets moved that way. When I bottle, it all gets moved back this way. Uh, so we're, we're looking to move out of here. I really do need a lot more space. Um, you know, there'll be a lot more uh, big, shiny stainless so steel. So how, how tall, is your, how tall is your, are your column stills going to be? In? Um, no, Same I, ones or just more space? Yeah, I have that dream of a continuous one day, you know, 25 foot or 35 foot, whatever they are, um, 20, 24 inches around kind of thing, and that whole big setup. But I'm just not there yet. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a neat concept as a distiller to be able to play with new toys. And so since I don't already own a continuous still, it's like, I really want to play with one. Um, but right now our big still, it's 300 gallons and it's a, um, it's a hybrid still. Um, so I can pot still with it and I can column still with it. And I have a five plate column. So with five plates, you know, there's, there's only so much that you can do with this particular still. Um, and the reason I design it like this is because really this still is my rum still. Um, we started making rum with one of the smaller stills, and you never know how a new product is. Was rum the? I know we talked about the corn. I know we talked about what was the first item? Was it was it vodka? Was it rum? What was the first item that Old Republic was distilling? The first item we started distilling was corn liquor. Was corn liquor? So then yeah. you could grow. You can go into your moonshine, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was apple pie moonshine. We, we do a product that we call um, um, blueberry apple pie moonshine um, and and love potion, too, which is uh, blueberries and strawberries. It's a nice cordial. Um, but, you know, we just used uh, a nice, clean, kind of sweet corn liquor to, to make those things. That's how we got started. And then it was just a matter of adding uh, uh, six more plates <laughs> And um, trying to rectify it even further and get it, get it above that 190 uh, requirement. So you could do vodka. Yeah. And then it moved into, um, you know, I was messing around with some whiskey. Um, but I really never really had a passion to do much whiskey. Uh, I, I wanted to make great rum. So I started messing around with rum. And there's a million ways to make rum. 
as long as whatever sugar source comes from, you know, the sugarcane plant, which of course there are many different varieties of that, uh, including the plant itself, raw, um, you know, it's just a lot of different ways that you can make rum. And that's just, you know, from the same sugar source and being re refined into what we use now is straight molasses. Um, it's a great molasses. It's probably not the same kind of molasses you have in, in your cupboard. No, it's that you don't want a baking molasses. It'll no, you, not turn out the really the way you want it to. Yeah, and it's it's a unique combination of molasses that we put together to really achieve that unique flavor uh, of rum. When you taste our rum, I really cross my fingers and I want you to say, wow, this is a really awesome rum. Um, it's got a great aroma. It's got a great flavor. If you like mojitos like I do in the summertime. Uh, I really wanted to have that knock you out mojito that you just said, wow, give me another one. Um, so when I went about formulating uh, the rum and trying this and trying that and doing this to see, see if there was differences, it finally got to the point where you take all those little nuances I was saying before day by day that you can put together and you say, you know what, this is how it has to be. And so the way it has to be for us is using a, a, a really nice molasses blend and putting it together with the most love and care that you possibly can to distill it in the end and have this incredible, uh, this rum that has this nose <laughs> and it tastes, uh, it smells like molasses cookies. It, it tastes like molasses. I cookies. like the buildup here because we're going to, we're going to taste this soon, but I oh, love yeah. the buildup. Look, I look around here and I know when, when we were talking before we set up for the podcast, you know, you touched on your biology background, but you have this great physics background that you talk about. And, and I think you bring something different to everybody comes from different places in the craft distilling industry. But you, you, you kind of talked about the physics of distilling and touch a little bit about that because I think that's really fascinating. Um, well, speaking of fascinating, I'm just fascinated with physics. Okay. <laughs> that's pretty much all there is to it. I, I love physics. Um, you know, You're every, Bill Matthias, the physics guy. Pretty much so. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of parlays itself into booze. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I do try and take a, a little bit of a different approach probably than the standard distiller. Um, because of my physics background, my appreciation for it, um, a good friend of mine, when we installed this, uh, this big still here, uh, is a control designer, a control engineer. And I said, hey, I want to design, you know, our, our own control system, but I really want to do it differently. And so we installed sensors and we installed, you know, thermostats and all kinds of things that we can pull back into a computer and read by the millisecond changes on everything physical. Um, so I spent the last probably three or four years looking over data after a run, just going home and circling changes that you could see, physical changes that, that would come up in the data and try different things to see how I could make that data change and see if, if I did something different, if I could maybe smooth some things out or, or, or if I changed something some way, how that would change the physics and, you know, record it into a computer and you go through the data day after day after day after years. We've really been able to uh, look at the whole thing that we do under the roof of this distillery from a physical aspect 
and how we can understand and change things from a physical aspect. The biochemistry is fantastic. Uh, I think there are a lot of books and there's a lot of information out there for people who want to get into the industry to understand the biochemistry. Well, I think you have to like you have to understand the science. You have to in understand terms of, of of the chemistry sure. of it, yeah. and and the converting the sugars in and the yeast Absolutely. and all this stuff that happens with fermentation. Mm-hmm. While you're talking about that, my visual picture is you are very much parallel to uh, motorsports to NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the NASCAR of distilling. Pretty or much. distilling of NASCAR, whichever one that works, in a way, because they'll run the car and they'll look at all the data, yes. fuel consumption, air, yeah. whatever it is, to, to, to get that little, that, that one little thing to get a little extra second faster on the car. Yes. You're looking to get a little bit more out of the juice that you're fermenting, just a little bit more out to the distillate to get flavor to get all those compositions before you put them in the bottle. And that's a whole different mindset. You're right. I don't think people think about that as much while they're put, they'll put the sensors. They want to know, you know where they are temperature-wise for your heads and tails and, and things like that. And, and, and are you distilling too hot? But I, I think you've got a, a really neat, interesting perspective. I, I just I see you running that uh, you know whatever number car around the track on your, <laughs> on your, on your distillery. Well, nothing ever happens in a linear motion. Nothing's ever flat. In physics, you're looking at, you know, basically the calculus. Things are always moving. And how do you control that movement is what we're more interested in than anything else. Yeah, the race team is a great kind of, you know, way to, to put it together, but we're not necessarily looking to make our car faster. We're looking to make our car better. You know, and if that means faster in, in NASCAR or, or sports, well, fuel consumption more efficient, tire wear, yeah. all that stuff better. How do we get more flavor? Yeah. Because it's for me, uh, we distill for flavor, baby. It's all about the flavor. See, it's, you got it. That's got to be on your T-shirt, man. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> we distill for flavor, baby. It's all about the. flavor. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Now, all right, I, I'm. You've got this. You've got this. Like, hey. I'm cutting out, I'm, I'm sending off picture, you know, the, the little labels for Jack Daniels. You, March 3rd wasn't the first day you distilled. Obviously, you have to distill. What was the first day you distilled? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember. Some, exactly. some time. Yeah. Well, but what was it for you? You had this whole setup. You, 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 there, there's a gentleman that helps you set up this whole control system. What was it like the first day you fired up? Oh, you know, uh, I believe, if I remember right, it was making a beer without the hops. Okay. Um, because I had read somewhere that if you put your hops and make a, a traditional style beer, trying to so you're making the wort, right? Yeah, that you know that that gums up the inside of your uh, still, which it does. I learned later that you, <laughs> that's why you don't put hops in. And honestly, there are some people that are now trying to do that. Um, I have never tasted any distillate that came from, you know, the four-ingredient beer um, with the hops actually in the boiler like that. Um, I understand it's being done here and there. Um, I just really have a great appreciation for my equipment. (laughs) I wouldn't want to spend, you know, day upon day upon day coming in here and trying to scrub off the stickiness of the residue from the hops or anything like that. So I let the hops out of it and then pot you know, distilled it very quickly, stripping, um, did a few of those, collected it, put it back in and, and learned how to do a spirit run. Um, 
it's it's something that you you have to do time and time again trying to understand exactly what you're smelling exactly what you're tasting because and i'm sure a lot of your listeners know that when it comes to distilling there's a four shots there's a heads there's a hearts and then there's a tails well the first time you do any of this you don't really know what that yeah, smells no, it's, like. Yeah, it's like going in the woods and you have no idea what the trees are and the animals around you and anything that could be out there. You're just you're learning yeah. it as you go. And this is a cornucopia of, of things that are coming out of here in, in the four shots and in the heads. Things that you never even smelled before. I think the one thing, and I isolated this just for a, uh, a demo that I did a few weeks ago, actually... Right after the methanol, which you get a couple of drops of methanol. This is in your beer and wine. It's natural part of fermentation. Uh, so you get a couple of uh, uh, drops of methanol. Right after the methanol at a low temperature comes um, fingernail polish. You know, so you have acetone in your fermentation. Well, I don't think a lot of people really realize that a fermentation process produces these things. Right, and if you were to stop there... You have nail polish, or well, nail polish it, remover, right? Yeah. And if I were to not know that, you know, where these cuts were, what these, what was happening here, it, and I was to judge my distillate on the first, say, fifty milliliters that comes out, I would probably just cut the whole thing off and say <laughs> this is a massive failure at this point. But you have to run those things out; they're much lighter weight, and that's why they come out first because they're so lightweight that they work their way through the still much faster. They evaporate faster at a lower temperature. So once you get those things out of the way, you know, especially the four shots, you're into your heads, you're halfway through your heads and you can start smelling the good stuff. Now, it's not here yet because it still tastes really bad. It tastes like cleaning, you know, chemicals. But eventually they go away and go away. When you make that heads cut, which is something every young distiller will learn, where to make that heads cut, all of a sudden, you have just a amazing, it's, it's everything that you ever dreamt about distilling. It's the way you want it, you know? You got to do it several times. You have to understand those chemicals that are coming out. You have to understand what you're tasting and what you're smelling. And over time, you understand exactly where you need to make that cut and how long you run that into the tails. Because, you know, I think something else that needs to be said is that the tails are not all bad. Uh, depending on what you're making, um, you either run into the tails a little bit more or a little bit less. Yeah, I, we've had conversations, you know, whiskey production, mm-hmm. you know, th- they'll pull in some of those tails. Sure. Even for rum, y- that's yeah. going to give you a little bit more of a flavor, that funkiness to what you may be trying in the rum, right? Yeah. I, I love this experience that we're, we're meandering through the distilling process together. Yeah. You really paint a great visual picture of, of, of that experience for you mm-hmm. and that learning experience for you. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing experience when you really first get your hands on a still and you start running things for the first several times. It's so exciting. It's, it's also scary. You know, it's very scary because you, you hear the things about, oh, hey, so-and-so blew up. <laughs> Um, you know, or so-and-so did this, or you didn't cut it right, and the chemicals that you left in made people sick. You know, there's types, types of things that we all hear about. Um, and, it, and if you're not scared that you're going to do it wrong, then you're already doing it wrong. You need to be scared. Um, anytime you do anything for the first time, it's a natural human reaction for us to be a little bit afraid of it. Absolutely. And after we do it a time or two, that goes away. because I, I think you want your senses to be heightened. 
You and, really and do. Number one, it helps you remember the yep. process better. But number two, you have an awareness of exactly what you need to do as things go through, and you don't want to miss anything. You don't. Uh, attention to detail, yeah. especially when you're looking at your cuts. You really the, the, the more you do it, the more you understand exactly where you need to make that cut. And that goes back to what I was saying before. If I can learn something, one little iota every single day, that's part of that cut. Learning that information, understanding how that smells, understand how that tastes exactly where you want to cut it. Um, cutting too late, um, in, in some instances, is just as bad as cutting too early. Because, for example, if I'm making rum and I know I'm putting it in a barrel for a couple of years, I actually want to cut a little bit early. You know, earlier than I would if I was making a white rum, which I do a lot of white rum. You know, and you have to have it clean at that point. But when I'm when I'm making rum for a barrel, it's altogether different. I'm actually cutting a little bit more into those heads. What, what I want is it? Some of those what, yeah, why? Why is it? What's important to you on those volatiles? Why? Because those volatiles, when it has a chemical reaction, reaction to the wood with the wood, actually turn into positive and good flavors, ester profiles that you actually want in the end uh, product. You know, a, a great rum. That's been an aged rum, I should say, uh, has to go through that process, has to have that chemical reaction in order for you to get those flavors that you're not going to get otherwise. Uh, and so you really kind of have to, you know, take uh, several times and, and maybe do it wrong a couple of times. And finally you figure out, hey, you know, this is kind of where I need to cut this because I don't want anything before this, but I most definitely want these. And, you know, in, in the early cut of the heads or the late cut of the heads so that I can, uh, you know, have that chemical reaction happen in that barrel that two years from now when I empty that barrel or four years or eight years or whatever, uh, you actually have something that you've achieved through chemical reaction over a period of time and the reaction with that wood. And that's fantastic stuff. And we could, look, we could talk about wood and all that stuff and we will as we, we taste some of this. But I'm, uh, you've got this, this, pr- this passion. That you've put this all together, and you've put it all in bottles, and then you open your doors on March 3rd, 2012, and the public comes in. What was opening day like or opening weekend like for you? Oh, you know, like I said, the first time you do anything, you're usually scared to death, and I was scared to death. Okay. Um, I had my family. Interesting story is before we actually opened, we joined the local wine trail because I thought, hey, this is a great way for us to kind of get our name out there. And it's a good way for us to, you know, maybe set ourselves up on a good trajectory. And so we joined the wine trail. The very first day of the wine trail was March 3rd. We, we had crossed our fingers that we could actually make this product fast enough, you know, uh, between having the license. I uh, believe we were actually licensed in October of 2011. But because we really couldn't open yet, um, and it was the end of the year, instead of paying that yearly fee, we put it in safekeeping in Pennsylvania and then got it out of safekeeping on January 1st. Okay. So that way our, our original first year fee was a whole year and not just a, you know, a couple months. Uh, so we went at it hard in January, February, uh, working you know as hard as we could to try and get product so that we could have bottled product. <clears throat> I... Uh, I employed a lot of my family members to come and volunteer and help us pour samples. Yeah, I, you employed. I, I'm sure it was a hard conversation. Hey, help me do this. Yeah. And you can try some as you bottle it or Absolutely. whatever, right? You know, <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll give you a bottle if you help me out. You right. know, I can't afford to pay you. But um, at any rate, we, uh, we set our tables up 
and I had, uh, you know, a family member at each table, and um, my mother, uh, who was kind of went outside at the point, at, right before we opened up, and I was trying to fine-tune a few things um, just to get ready to open the door, and a minute later, she comes walking in, and she said, Billy, you're not going to believe this, but there's a, there's a line out your door, and it goes all the way down the alley, and I didn't believe her. I thought she was just pulling my leg, but uh, so I peeked out the window, and I'll be darned, there was a line, you know, the length of a car uh, out the front door. It bent around and went down the alley, probably 50 yards or more. It was a pretty long line. Well, I didn't know if I even had enough booze. Oh, wow. To, you know, because we had worked hard, but I, don't, I didn't know if I had enough. Um, so my sister's my business partner, and between the two of us, we were really nervous. Um, but... Long story short, the day went fantastic. I think uh, that whole first weekend, um, it's no longer our sales record, but that was our sales record that we needed to beat then. Uh, almost every month after that, for years, we were hoping that one day, you know, one day we'll be able to sell that much booze in a weekend again. And, uh, of course, it, would, it took several years for us to get back to that number again. But, boy, I'll tell you, it was the best That must feeling. have been exhilarating. That's it was just, the best you know, feeling. It, it, it's saying, hey, we're on to something, right? Yeah, because, you know, you have a passion and you go through all the things that we had gone through for, for two years prior to this license even being passed by the uh, by the Pennsylvania State um, Legislature to legalize distilling in the first place. And we put a lot of hard work into achieving that, along with a few other people um, around the state. And to have the opportunity in first place and go through all the pains of doing this license and having this license and getting that license and putting it all together and finally buying your equipment and, you know, doing the real thing and not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, when I saw that line and at the end of the day, I, I was walking on water. It was the greatest, probably, I mean, I'll put it second only to December 22nd of 19, uh, 2011 um, when the law passed in Pennsylvania making it legal. We had worked so hard up to that point, and I do have to say that was a very joyous day for me. I was jumping all over the place. I can imagine, yeah. You know, I finally had an opportunity. That's all I was asking for, yeah. was just an opportunity. Everything's free now to you to go out and distill and do it the way you want to do it. Yep. The law passes, yep. and you're just exuberant. I was beyond myself. And then the first day, of course, we whole weekend was fantastic. Like I said, we were on the wine trail. That lasted, I think it was at the time... Uh, two, it might have been three weekends, three three consecutive weekends. I forget anymore how it was. Um, at that point, after the wine trail, you know, we we had had the opportunity to get our name out there, which we did during the wine trail. So we started kind of chipping away. Business was you know slow at first, and we started chipping away, and our name became a little bit you know more known around the area. And finally, after a couple of years. I think, like I had said before, people stopped coming in and asking what kind of beer we make. Right, now they want to know what else you make. Yeah, now they want to know, hey, are What's you going to make a gin? Yeah. You know, or, or when's your rum coming out? Or, you know, do you have any plans for whiskey? And, uh, you know, what's your grain bill? And, and really, all the <laughs> right. questions started going towards distilling instead of, hey, beer, and what kind of beer do you make or what kind of wine you make? Uh, so it was, it was really, really awesome. 
um, beginning to end prior two years before the license was uh, approved and legalized in Pennsylvania to two years after. In that four-year period, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of big ups and a lot of a couple big downs, you know, a lot of learning and just really one of the most intense uh, and rewarding at the same time four years of my entire life. Well, that's a perfect segue because we have bottles in front of us and we talk about the opening day. What would you like us to taste first? What do you want to go to first? Um, well, I think the first thing I'd like for you to sample is this apple brandy. Okay. And why did you pick apple brandy? Well, right now we're, we're doing this in York, Pennsylvania. And York and Adams County in Pennsylvania produce a lot of fruit. Apple, capital of the world, or whatever it is. Well, at least Pennsylvania. I think <laughs> Pennsylvania is probably the oh, yeah, yeah, apple. second or third most apple production in the country. And it just so happens to be right here in our backyard. So um, it was a natural thing for me to want to make apple brandy. You're going to notice that that apple brandy has one heck of an aroma. It smells like apples. I feel like the, the, the essence of, like you open up um, a, uh, a jar of applesauce and you just get everything that's been held up by that lid and then it just all rushes out. Yes. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. Like I said before, it's the aroma. You know, the flavor and the aroma is really what we try and achieve. Uh, when I make a brandy and uh, back in my first year, two years, I made a great pe uh, peach brandy and it was... It seemed like it was so easy my first time. Ever since then, I've been trying to achieve the same thing that I, I think I did when I really didn't know as much. Um, the apples, the same way. The apples are just fantastically fresh. We have. So I was going to say, it smells like a fresh apple. Yeah, so, you know, when we, when I, when, the apples that we use are fresh picked and pressed right then and then, uh, right then and there. We uh, have some great local farms. Uh, that produce these apples and different varieties, and we can even specify certain species of apples, which I've done single uh, species apple brandies in the past. This is more of a traditional where it's a blend. Um, we bottle that at 100 proof, and it's so easy drinking at 100 proof that it's crazy. So I'm tasting this now as you're describing this. One of the other things I got on the nose was a caramel apple. There's a little bit of that caramel essence in the nose. I'll tell you what, at 100 proof, yeah, um, it, it's this is like one of those things. I'm, I'm picturing a fall, uh, a fall evening, or you, you get that really nice warmth of of that alcohol at the proof level. It is, but to your point, tons of flavor. I get like a, a sour apple Jolly Rancher on the palate. That's what I really got at first, and that's just delicious. Well, thank you very much. And honestly, you're at least three or four feet away from me. And as you hold that, uh, the aroma is making you it its way over <laughs> my nose. I'm that far away from you. It just smells so good. It's, it's one of my favorite go-tos. Um, you know, when I just want to sit down and have one drink or sip on something, it's, it's always that brandy because as I sit it down on the table next to me and relax in my chair, 
It's that aroma that comes over past my nose while I'm sitting on that chair that I can smell for, you know, an hour, two hours, as long as that cup sits there. Even when you drink it all and the cup still sits next to you or the glass sits next you're still getting some of that aroma that just slowly comes out of that glass. And it's, I don't know, it just makes me really happy. Um, not just drinking it makes me happy, but uh, smelling it makes me happy. Yeah. I, I think it's important. And for those that haven't had this, this is an amazing apple brandy, but it's, it's the experience of the nose. It's the experience of just the warmth of the brandy, the flavors of the brandy. You, you can sip this. You can put this on ice. You can make a little cocktail out of this. It's very versatile. Things don't get lost in this, but on its own, this is first rate. And I know you said, one of the things you said is you, you haven't entered any competitions with any of your spirits. No, uh... Somehow or another, we had, uh, I believe it was our Battlefield Vodka sent to a magazine, and we were highlighted in that magazine, and it was rated a 93, but one of the things that we just decided not to do is send our spirits out to, you know, the competitions and stuff uh, for various reasons. I think more than anything, we just don't feel like we really want to get involved in a competition, per se. So much as we really want to be known just to have good spirits. Well, I think it's a recognition part. And I will say to you, that's incredible. Um, there's, there's so much going on with that. And I know that you also touched on, as we spoke, about, you know, not necessarily, I think for you, it's not necessarily having a passion to make a whiskey. Um, but I, I think one of the things that for a whiskey drinker, a bourbon drinker, a rye drinker, what we're looking for are those different levels. The th you know, you could taste it, take a sip now and you taste one thing. You could take a sip now and you taste another. You nose it and you're nosing different things as the, as the um, ethanols, as everything kind of opens up. This is on par with something that I would say as a whiskey drinker that you're going to get all – I get like this, this, you know, the caramel notes. The, there's there's the, uh, the, the, the burnt marshmallow notes, the toasted marshmallow notes on that, the fresh essence of apple um, applesauce, apple juice, Jolly Rancher, it's all there, and it all comes through on different levels. Yeah, and we really try to uh, even put an emphasis on the mouthfeel. Um, I found a certain variety of apple that gives me more mouthfeel. It doesn't give me as much aroma, but it has to be part of the blends of apples that I use in order to get that aspect into the you know, the brandy, so that what you're talking about, that overall experience, yeah, it smells great, yeah, it tastes great, you're getting that multiple layer, but that mouthfeel, you know, it just makes it that much better. It's not thin, it's not thick, it's kind of coats your tongue a little bit. And we don't use anything uh, chemical to, you know, make it thicker or anything like that. That's just naturally out of the out of That's the part of what's happening on the distill, in, in this still. Yep. And I would say, I think it's been a couple of minutes since I've had my last taste, and I still have apple. Mm -hmm. You said on, caramel, right? Because yeah. I tasted candy apple, and you tasted the caramel apple. That's funny. Yeah. And that, But that's the beauty of the experience, right? It is. Yeah. What's next? Like, I, okay. I, now, now I'm like a kid in a candy apple store. I don't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, hard to beat that one, um, but I'm going to try. How did you come up with the name Old Republic? What was the, you know, what was the uh, development of that? Old Republic is an extension during the, well, before the country was born. Um, here in York, Pennsylvania, we had uh, the Second Continental Congress met here. 
All right, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know that that was some, I didn't know, how, why, they met here? Yeah, um, originally they came from Philadelphia, of course they were getting pounded over there, so they originally said, hey, let's go to Lancaster and we'll meet in Lancaster. Well, as they rolled into Lancaster, there was someone that, there that said, keep on rolling to York. <laughs> we don't want you here. <laughs> uh, it was, I think, a little bit cl- too close and they wanted to okay. give themselves the a little bit more buffer um, for safety reasons and whatnot. So they came to York. Um, there was an old courthouse here in York, and they took that over, and the Second Continental Congress met here. And uh, during that time, uh, it's hidden hidden in the in the uh, history, but there was a distillery in southern York County called the New Republic Distillery. Wow. Yeah. And apparently, as I've found out about this, started reading a little bit, trying to dig up as much information as I could about the distillery, What's written is it apparently made the best whiskey, you know, that people had ever had. And it was rye whiskey at the time that was made here. And so I read this story several times and I thought, wouldn't it be fantastic to recreate one of the best things ever uh, to happen around here and, um, you know, in, in our history and, uh, and recreate that in a new way? And call it the Old Republic Distillery. Now we're an Old Republic. Uh, so that's where the name came from. This is one of the things I love about the whole, you know, for, for Dawn and I, we learn so much history, right? We, we learn stuff we, I didn't even know. Like Continental Congress I came to you York. I you knew everything about history. <laughs> <laughs> so we learn. So this is the Old Republic. This is the second distillery in York from the beginning of the conception of the country. No. Ah, oh, all right. There's more history to learn. If uh, there are many distilleries, your county county is really one of the founders. You know the the Irish. Um, we call it Scotch Irish here, um, but in Ireland they actually call it the Ulster Scots because they're actually Scots that were kicked out of Scotland and they were forced over to Ireland into the Ulster region of Ireland. And from there came to the United States, and they were sick and tired of being kicked around. They were forced to fight wars they didn't want to fight. They had lost their land. Their, their waters for, for fishing had been ruined. Um, and they were outcasts. They weren't even allowed to do trade with people in the towns. Um, so they had enough. And really what they wanted, and really the only thing that they wanted, was freedom. 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 So they came here, many of them in the late 1600s, and settled here in York. And they brought a handful of seeds with them and their small little stills. And all they really wanted to do was be free and make whiskey. Because whiskey was pretty much what they, you know, was what they did. And they wanted to be able to do that freely in one place without have being run over every you know year by somebody else's army. Um, and of course, they came here and they settled. They made friends with the local Indians. And um, the funny thing about Pennsylvania history is a lot of it is actually, you know, an extension of the English and and whatnot, um, the German history of Pennsylvania. And a lot of the early Scotch Irish history is not even in the history books. But if you look at the, uh, this was Lancaster County at one time. York was Lancaster. So before it became York. Um, and before anybody actually came across the Susquehanna River to live in York, 
um, there were people living here, and they were Scotch-Irish. So if you read the history books, they say, these are the first people to move to York. Oh, and by the way, there were some already already some people some, living some, some here. Others, <laughs> other people here. Yeah, yeah. It's just a side mention in the history books. By the way, there were some people here already. Uh, what it doesn't say is that's those people that were here already. They, those were the Scotch Irish. They were, they were, you know, the people we were just talking about. Um, they had already had a whiskey tradition. Now, fast forward to 1750s. The 1750s, there were over 550 registered registered stills in York County. 550 registered stills. That's only the registered ones. There were more than that. But every single farmer in York County had a still. Everyone made whiskey. It was a regular commodity that was, you know, put Tradable. on the Yeah. Yep. They put it on the carriage. They take it down to Baltimore and they would trade that whiskey for clams, oysters, even rum. Um, some of the history books that, that, that actually, you know, have logs of what was traded for show that they would sell this stuff for this stuff. Oh, and by the way, bring a little rum back because <laughs> they didn't make rum here. Yeah, if you're heading to Baltimore, bring us back some rum. And that's a good segue for what are we drinking now? What are we drinking right now? Um, this is our Gates House rum. It's our white rum. And uh, as I mentioned before, it's a nice clean cut. Um, it's a fantastic mojito. And I like to sip it straight neat just the way it is it's a full flavor you're going to get a molasses cookie on the tongue you're going to smell that molasses cookie and it's in my opinion i really like rum i've tried lots of different rums and it is a very unique rum this is delicious thank you i i, I get banana mm. i get pineapple i get that cookiness that spiciness that you talk about and whatever comes to my mind i'm like like i'm, I'm almost feeling like a little bit of a banana's foster. Yeah. Where you get a little bit of creaminess of, of the banana to that or a little bit of the creaminess of the of the vanilla ice cream that you put over banana, you know, under banana, you know, the banana's foster. That is really nice. Thank you very much. I love how you brought out rum as, as we were talking, you know, we, I've been <laughs> sipping this through the whole history lesson of uh, York County and... Well, I tried that. Yeah, that was good. That was perfect. <laughs> Even on the nose, and, and again, I, one of the things I love is, look, this is craft. So... You know, we can have rum from this distillery and we can have rum from this distillery and it's all going to be so different and so unique and, and, and fun. Yep. And one of the things I want to touch on, full of flavor. Full Absolutely. of flavor. Yeah, if it has the old Republic name on it, it's got to have a lot of flavor, uh, a lot of aroma. Um, you know, as they say in Germany, you, you distill for aroma. Well, we take that same concept here in that we want to pack as much flavor into it, but we really want you to have an experience smelling it too, because that's part of it. You're putting this stuff up to your nose. You're going to smell it. It has a good nose to it. Yeah. yeah. And it's very, very important to what we do here. As it's opened up, as it's kind of come through my palate, I, get, I start getting spices, mm -hmm. um, a little rosemary and mint on that and, and, and pepperiness to it. Yeah. Um, again, it's the same experience we just had with your brandy. All these different layers. And this is why, you know, I talk to distillers right now where rum is on that cusp of, you know, it's where is bourbon? Where was bourbon? Where everybody's trying to figure out what to do with bourbon and all the things that are happening. I think rum's, you know, if you talk to people, rum's that next bourbon to come along because of all the stuff that you can do with it. Yeah. So 
so we, we make it here, you make it straight, you make it clear in a nice white spirit, and then you, bar- you barrel it, right? Well, we do. We have, uh, we age it, and we also uh, distill it a little, a little bit differently, but we make a dark rum too. And the dark rum is, uh, is just a little bit more banana. Uh, a little bit more of that. And character. bananas are good. <laughs> bana- bananas and rum are, that's what you're ultimately trying to achieve in the flavor and stuff. Right. Because I think it's very well noted around the world that, you know, that's kind of what you're going towards. You're getting, you really want to get that palm tree. You know, you want to taste those bananas. You want to feel the warm breeze. Um, you know, and that, those are all kind of things that are reminiscent of a fantastic rum. You know, when we talk about Jamaican rum, which, you know, I, I've tried lots of different rums. Jamaican probably is my favorite, outside of my own, just because they go through such, you know, so many things to try and achieve that banana flavor. That's the one thing they really want to get to, and they do a fantastic job. If anybody out there wants to start distilling rum and making their own rum, do yourself a favor, go get yourself a few bottles of Real Jamaican rum, and then there, there's your target. Yeah. Right see there. here, like, like this is the thing. This is your influence, right? Yeah. You have a mindset of what you want your rum to taste like, what your brandy to taste like. Before it goes on the still, like you talk about, like what apples do I select? What, mm-hmm. what molasses or what? You know, how do I take that molasses in different combinations to make my rum to get it to that flavor profile, that nose profile that I want it to come out at? Yeah, it's so important to do your homework and never be satisfied with the first run. That's just an R&D run. You should do 20 or 30 of them um, differently every single time. Has your, has it, so not just from the first one, because we know, like you said, first 20, but has your rum, has, have your distilled spirits, have they matured in flavor? Are they where you want them to be? Are they still a work in progress? That's a great question because I think all this is always a continual work in progress. Um, you try and get better at your craft every single day. And, and there, I'll say the nuances again, you know, you, you just want to try and get a little bit better. Um, and although we're very, very happy with our products and we don't really put them in bottles and put a, a Old Republic label on them until we feel like it's worthy of that label, um, I'm never going to say never and that it'll never get any better because that's the ultimate goal, right? So what people need to know is just because they bought one of your rums today, it might taste a little bit different tomorrow and it might taste a little bit, not tomorrow, but you know, two years down the road, you might have something different in that same rum that you would have had. You know, now, now it, you, you've tweaked something. You, you pulled out a little more flavor. Maybe the proof changed a little bit. Who knows? But just because it says, you know, this rum, Gates House rum, it still could be a different rum. Uh, same well, pro, same mash, you know, same molasses, but just a little bit different. I think the way I, pr- I would approach that, and I do R&D all the time, is uh, it would be a, product, a new product is what it would be. You just relabel it, repackage it, and say this is, this is our Gates House rum, but this is going to be, you know, the you know, Gates House select. Whatever. Exactly. Yeah, it could be a different product. And, and you know, ultimately you go through all that R&D to try and achieve something different. Um, and which is really important when we're talking about uh, craft spirits. If you're trying to reproduce somebody else's product, 
you know, and rum. If we're trying to make Bacardi rum, we're never going to be able to compete with them by having our rum taste the exact same thing. So it has to be different, and it has to be... But you can have a Cuban-style rum, yeah, but not necessarily Bacardi. No. Right, you can have a Jamaican rum. Yeah. Right, but just a little bit different. Yeah, you're, you're looking to make it different. You really don't want to compete with anyone. You really want to be unique. You're competing with yourself. You are competing with yourself. That's the best way to put it. All right. So what are you grabbing? <laughs> you stood up real fast. And what are you grabbing now? <laughs> well, since you mentioned um, aged rum. Aged just, rum? just want you to try this one. Okay. I should start mentioning more. <laughs> So this is distilled slightly different, as I mentioned before. Um, now, how many? I, I see a lot of bottles. So, how many different um, skews? How many different products are you distilling right now that you're selling to the public? And then, do you have some different things that are just um, special releases? You know, go through that. Go through that process for us. Sure. Um, well, we'll start with the original three which is um, apple pie moonshine, blueberry apple pie moonshine, and love potion. All of, the, all of those things are classified as uh, liqueurs. Uh, even apple pie moonshine as, you know, backcountry. Because, because, of, the, is, because of, of the lower proof on that, right? Well, it has to fit into a category at the TTB. Okay. And so sometimes you might think of it as something else, but it actually, in the way it's prepared, actually fits into a specific category by the TTP, and therefore it fits... The liqueur, gotcha. you know, that, in that way. Um, then we also have uh, our rums, which is Gates House rum, which is our white rum. Um, we have Golden Plow Tavern dark rum. And by the way, our white rum is bottled at 80 proof. Our dark rum is bottled at 100 proof. And our what you're sipping on now is our aged rum. Um, we aged that in bourbon barrels. And that's also bottled at 80 proof. When you say aged them in bourbon barrels, are they used already or are they yes. new? Okay. Yeah, so it's freshly dumped um, when they dump the, the bourbon out of them. And, of course, you, you're a whiskey guy. So what happens in bourbon is you have to start with a brand new barrel every single time. Yes. And that barrel, once it's emptied, you can't put more you know, white bourbon in there and age it, it, reuse that barrel. So that barrel is no good to that bourbon distillery anymore. So... It is a very highly sought-after barrel, in, in particular in Scotland and Ireland, um, where they import a lot of American bourbon barrels to age their single malts in. Of course, they use sherry casks and stuff like that, too. Um, but the bur American bourbon barrel is probably one of the most popular things to, to uh, age a single malt in. Um, for us, we get them freshly dumped. And then we fill them right back up with our rum and put them to bed for two years. And uh, voila, we end up with a fantastic rum that has just a slight nose of bourbon. You do. And, and it's interesting that you, as, as you're talking about that and you were, you know, just, just my experience, the bourbon's there. And this is, again, going to that, that, that so complex notes of, 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 of essence of everything on the nose here. Yeah. There's a lot going on. There is a lot going on in that uh, that aged rum. You're right. You do get the bananas still, and you know the the fruit and the islands and and whatnot. But then you also add that bourbon barrel and that barrel, uh, the wood also. 
not just a bourbon flavor, you know, the, the reminiscence of the bourbon, but also that wood. And we try and get these barrels that are not too overly aged where all the wood is sucked out of it. But, you know, a nice two or four years, something like that. That that's Are you allowed good. to say where you're getting your barrels from? Or is uh, that a trade secret? Um, it's not necessarily a trade or, or secret. Old Republic secret. <laughs> it's an old Republic secret. All right, then nobody gets to know. I really, um, you know, I'm not particular. I like to try different things. I think in the blending of the barrels after you, so you know, after they're ready to go, it's the blending of the barrels. They kind of maybe this barrel has something that this one doesn't. Uh, putting them together in the right way to give you that full round body uh, flavor is really kind of the objective. So. You really have to use a variety of barrels. This is tremendous. I'm, I'm, I'm sipping this as we're, we're speaking. And one of the last things I got on the nose was a little bit of chocolate. You get vanilla, you get caramel, you get that banana that you spoke about. It really takes down that from the white rum. It takes a lot of that, the, the, the heavy rum characteristics. And then there's like this romantic melding of bourbon and rum that comes together. They're dancing together perfectly on the nose. This is really nice and smooth. It's not a high – is this 80 proof as well? That's 80 proof. Yeah, this is 80 proof. So – and you talked about something important about mouthfeel. This this really just on, – on the mouth, the viscosity, it's not light. It doesn't disappear. It's not heavy. It doesn't sit there. But you get this real just – it takes you through everything without disappearing, but it just doesn't like overly linger. Yeah, hopefully there's a party going on all the way back through your time. <laughs> and I'm not a big barrel aged, but when you said smooth, it's exactly, it's very smooth. It's not like overpowering. Yeah, it's just a part of the achievement of, of what we feel is the perfect age rum mm-hmm. is, you know, that balance like you're talking about. It really does, you want it to be smooth. Um, I don't think you really want to gag on it too much. There's, um, there's You get some tobacco notes on this, a little bit of smokiness. There's also a little bit of like, again, uh, sourness that just, it hits and then goes away. It's, it's like, a, it's weird. It just comes in, cleans out, and it goes away. Yeah. I don't know if anybody's ever picked that up before or if you picked that up. Um, it's just something that just popped into my mouth there. It's just always tasting it. Yeah, I always find it fascinating to hear people like you uh, explain people like various, me, yeah, yeah. the various things that you're smelling <laughs> and tasting in there. I'm fascinated by that. I'm more or less, you know, I'm the distiller. Uh, it's it's got to be you know right for me, but the, the connoisseurs out there, I, I always enjoy. Uh, someone who comes in has never tasted this stuff before. I want to hear what they have to say because it's it's usually very interesting in, in that manner. You know, I probably wouldn't myself say tobacco, um, but I get what you're saying there because of the bourbon and the barrel aspect and and kind of the meddling together of all the various things brings out so many different flavors. It's complex. Yeah, I mean, again, going through this, this is why, like, we could literally do a podcast with you, Bill, on this one bottle. Yeah. Because there's so much going on, and not to say the other spirits, because there's so much going on, but even now, just sipping this through, the oakiness starts to come out. You get some of the grassiness that maybe comes through the grain of whatever bourbon was left there. Sure. The residual there, too. Yeah. That's just... That's a home run, man. That's that's something to be everything so far is something to be really proud of. And again, I, I I can see your philosophy as we taste all these. And from our first visit a number of years ago to now, just you continue to put out really quality spirits. You really do. I really appreciate that. That's the goal. So uh, 
Right, we were to do it, good, good. Do your thing. No, go, we'll, no we'll you do your it. thing. Good. I'll pour. All right, you pour. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're you're selecting. You're selecting now. You're, you're yeah. What are you doing now? We're gonna try our single malt. All right, single malt whiskey. So if we had time to do. I don't want to leave your moonshine, the apple pie moonshine, off the, off the opportunity list. So, and then you've got a grappa too. So there's a grappa too. So there's so much. There's so much here. Yeah, the grappa. Uh, let me talk about that first. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, a friend of mine who owns a winery local here in New York, um, Allegro Wineries, um, about five years ago asked me if I would be interested in doing a grappa. And of course, I despise grappa. You despise it. Oh, it's one of the most horrid things I've ever had in my life. Um, so, you know, at least the, ver- the variety that I've had, and I was never a big fan of it. So I kind of, you know, didn't really want to do it. So what I said to him is, hey, I'll tell you what, I really kind of like to focus on local things. So if you have local grapes, you know, and at that point he had, you know, a vineyard, but I don't think the grapes, they take several years for the grapes to come in right on the vine. And I'm not a hundred percent sure about any of that stuff. But I said, when you have local grapes, I'll go ahead and we'll make a grappa. So five years later, he calls me and this is just what, two years ago. And he says, he said, uh, Hey, I have local grapes. When do you want to do this? Yeah, he's calling you. He's calling you on that. Like you thought forever, this was going to be your out, right? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was gone forever. But at any rate, uh, you know, you can't take back what you said you would do. <clears throat> so we worked it out, and um, eventually, I I had the you know the uh, fermentation and and um, brought it over here, and we, of course we ran it out and uh, made this grappa. And the grappa is so unique. Um, most grappa I've ever had before, I really equate more towards a turpentine than anything that you would want to drink. Of course, I've never had good uh, grappa, and that's why. Um, but we, I did this, you know, the, the best job that I could, and um, the grappa turned out fairly good. It's, uh, it has more or less like a brandy, uh, like a wine. Uh, flavor. It, has, it smells like wine. It kind of tastes like wine. Um, and it was very Well, I would imagine if it didn't hit the points that you wanted to, yeah. even getting those grapes and appeasing the idea of making a grappa, you wouldn't have bottled it. You wouldn't have gone through the process of labeling it and it wouldn't have just, hey, listen, right. I tried. I'm sorry. It's just, you can put, I'll give all this to you. You can bottle it and sell it under your label, right? I mean, yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. But you're happy and you're proud of it. Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> it's grappa. It's it's like IPA for us. Uh, yeah. You know, we like it, but we wouldn't gravitate towards it. Yeah. But then we try an IPA and we're like, all right, we like this. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it does um, kind of work on you over time. The first time I tried it, I, I thought, oh, wow, this tastes more like wine than it does what I remember grappa mm-hmm. tasting like. And um, so, you know, I had a few drinks and tried it a little bit later, and, and I thought, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought. And, you know, we, uh, we bottled, I think, uh, I think it was right around 100 bottles of it. Um, it's for the most part a one-time thing. When these bottles are gone, I don't know that I'll be ever, you know, asking for more grape skins. 
because you make grappa with grape skins. After the wine is pressed, uh, the juice is pressed out of them, um, you use, re-ferment the skins. Um, so that's how you make grappa. And I don't know that I really want to do it again, but uh, I thought it came out okay. Um, so that's the grappa story. That's the grappa legacy. That's, so yeah, that's the grappa story. If you are interested in the grappa, get here to Old Republic because once it's gone, it's gone. It's gone. Baby. <laughs> yep. Now, I don't know if we were because we were talking about it, but like I was smell like on the news, I was actually feeling like I was getting nuts. But when I taste it, I actually taste grapes. So I don't know if it's just because of the conversation. Well, that's whiskey. I know I that's know. what no, <laughs> but but it's different. It's very unique. The, 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 the unique thing, and I'll, I'll tell you about that whiskey. Um, I only make whiskey about once a year, once every two years. Whiskey is not... So you said you're not a whiskey guy. No. But this is awesome single malt. Well, it's, it's something that I'm going to continue to do. I learned a lot the, the, the last two times. Um, like I say, every other year or so, I'll make another batch of it. Um, it's something that I personally enjoy yeah. drinking. Um, and I wanted to do something totally different with this. First of all, I wanted it to be an American single malt. So 51% of those grains are American uh, malts. Um, I imported 40%, actually uh, uh, 39% of, of it is uh, the best malts in Ireland. I sought out to find the absolute best malts, and I found the best malts, the ones that are highly regarded in Ireland, and I brought those over. And then the, the last 10%, I really wanted to do something off the wall, because this is the flavor grains that really can distinguish a big difference in your flavor. So I went to Belgium and found this amazing malt in Belgium. It was very rare moss. It's very, very different than anything else that I've ever smelled or, or tasted before. And so I used those as the 10% the flavor moths. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen, but we figured we'd go ahead and do this. And uh, what we ended up with is what you're tasting there. It, it, it really is a unique single malt, um, as we set out for it to be. Um, but at the same time, it really hits those notes of that whiskey that, that you really look forward to in you know a single malt. We didn't want to overage it either. That's the other thing. I'm not a big fan of overaged single malts, and I know a lot of people are. But we we went through such a you know uh, a hard time trying to actually figure out the grains and what grains we wanted to use that. Ultimately, I want you to taste the grains. I don't want it to be too hidden by the barrel. Taste the grains, the grassy notes, yep. the maltiness of this. There's a sweetness of this. That's why the, the grapes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's just, but when Dawn mentioned there, there's a nuttiness to this, there's a fruity component to this. For somebody that doesn't like whiskey, but here's what I, you, 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 you went about this in a very scientific processed Manner mm -hmm. to say if I'm going to do this, put my stamp on it. Yep, it's going to be for me. This has to be a regular for what you do. I mean, I like if it hasn't. This is awesome. This is this That's is incredible. A I would actually drink. Yeah, really. Yeah. 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 Well, I really appreciate that, especially from whiskey drinkers. I do have. He's the whiskey drinker. I'm usually not, even though he'll put me in my place because a lot of times we'll go now and be like, oh, I kind of like that. 
But that's really different. I would have never, like, automatically said whiskey when I tasted that. Really? That's that's really interesting. I really appreciate that. Uh, I do have another barrel that's uh, currently aging. Um, and I'm looking forward to making a little bit more of it probably uh, early to mid-2021, which, of course, might be uh, finished aging by, what, 2024 or something. Uh, it's just not something I do all the time. So the little bit that I do, I really do cherish those that, that little bit that, that we get, I want to make sure it's aged right. I want to make sure you taste the grains because, look, I, you know, I can put it in a barrel for eight years or 10 years or 20 years or whatever, but little by little you start uh, tasting more of the barrel and the grains eventually kind of... No, there's got to be that balance. Yeah. I would say you don't... There's, there is... You get the, the, the oakiness of the barrel that comes mm-hmm. out. There's that flavor profile that comes out. But really what's front and center on this is you get the grains, you get the malts, you get, I go back to the sweetness of it, the grassiness of it. It's really delightful as to what you, what you did. And then you pulled it out at the right time. Yeah, that was the other thing. I, I kept on testing it. I was afraid there might not be anything left in the barrel by the time I was done testing it or tasting it. But I did feel like, like it was... It was going a little bit towards going away from the grain, and that's when I said, okay, you know, it's time to empty this barrel right now because if I let it go too much longer, we're going to lose some of that, you know, kind of raw grain uh, that I really wanted in the whiskey. Uh, So, you know, that was the objective, and I thought, you know, it came out really well. Uh, like I say, I have the next barrel is over there. It's, it's, it's over there. <laughs> we'll probably make some more uh, early next year, and we'll continue to make it at least every other year or so. Uh, it'll be a product that will always be around for us. It's just it's gotten to the point now where, even though I say I have an, a barrel over there, what we're drinking, uh, this bottle is my own personal supply because we now have a waiting list. Um, same with the apple brandy. As soon as the next apple brandy that comes great, out, great, great, great. So, so we sold. just tried things that we can't even get. <laughs> no, that, the barrel that's sitting over there, I'd say, is eighty percent already claimed. Okay. Uh, so you know, eighty-one percent already claimed. <laughs> I'll put your name down. Sure, no problem. Listen, this has been a, Bill. This has been a treat. I've been excited to come out here and sit down and talk with you. I this has exceeded my expectations. Um, you know, Donna and I talk on the way, and we drive, and we think about oh, you know, last time we were here and our experience. We try to remember, but we met your sister. She was delightful. Um, we've we've tried some of your different moonshines and and all those things. Are there things, anything on the podcast we haven't touched on that you don't want to miss that we we could have talked about today? You know. Uh... You got notes. No. Nobody came with notes ever. You got notes. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't even use them. You got me so off track here. Um, I'd say that uh, the, the thing that we have coming up that is, uh, I do want to mention. Good. Is our gin. Uh, I think I brought it up before that, you know, we get a lot of requests. Please make a gin. Um, those are the berries. Those particular berries are Italian uh, juniper berries. They have just a, the most delightful smell, and I've never been a fan. Here, here we go again. I've never been a fan of gin because of I always thought I, I chewing on a Christmas tree, you know, right. for the most part. Of course, I learned a lot about gin in the last few months, making it myself and and understanding that you can really make it differently. It doesn't have to taste like a Christmas tree. Um, so I kind of went out uh, on on the limb, 
Christmas tree. Gotcha. I'm, I'm with you. But went out on a limb, and I really wanted to do something different. So I put together a, a botanical setup with, for our gin that is hopefully unique. Um, as we do everything else, you really want to make what we do here and your taste and experience unique. So now that you set the stage, when's gin release day? Well, the labels are currently being <laughs> okay. printed, and we think that we'll probably be releasing our gin New Year's, you know, okay. right around the New Year, early January. And I think the exciting thing for me, too, is I didn't want to just do a regular gin, which we are coming out with an 80-proof Standard gin, I say standard, but it's a little different. Um, well, there's it, it could be a London Dry, New American style. Yeah, more more closer to you've got the botanical, so it's going to be more of a New American style botanical style gin. Absolutely, it's going to be very different, and, and that's a good way to put it. Um, not, it's not distilled at super high proof like a London is or dry. Um, so we wanted to capture as much of that flavor there again. The aromas are important to me. The flavor is important to me. But I wanted to take it to the next mile. And what we've done now is not only produced and, and formulated a regular gin, but we're also bringing out a pink gin. A pink Ooh. gin? Yes, this is a pink gin. And what we're doing with this gin is it's a little higher in proof, so I believe it's going to come in at uh, 94 and a half. And what we're doing is we're using flowers. Um, matter of fact, all right, Bill has left the table. <laughs> He's moving stuff around. He's throwing things in the air. He's like a mad scientist right now. There are containers and bags, and he's coming back with hibiscus. With hibiscus. Oh, nice. Wow. All right, so when's the pink gin release? Okay, the pink gin is probably coming probably a month after the regular. We're still uh, working on the formulation for that. It's submitted. The formulation has been approved. <laughs> so at this point, it's a matter of the label sure. approval. And then um, we'll be printing those labels also at that point. Um, but it's not just a hibiscus. It's also a lemon peel. So what we have going on in this pink gin is hibiscus and lemon peels. And it's really the oils in the only the yellow part, not the pith. We're very careful. And when we peel that off in... You don't want the bitterness of the rind. Not you the want bitterness. the essence and the lemony you know, goodness the of the... oils right. that are in there. Right. Uh, so... The end result of this is very different. You have gin, and you have the gin aspect, but you also have this almost creaminess that that hibiscus brings and a real shot of the lemon oil uh, all put together into this gin, and it's fantastic. Now, where we are, this is your original tasting room. This is your production facility. You have a tasting room in Ephrata? We do. We, uh, the last year, we have a tasting room in Ephrata. Um, look it up. It's online. Uh, Facebook, they even, uh, over in Ephrata, have their own Facebook page so that we don't, you know, there's always activities going on in both areas, and we don't want a one centralized uh, Facebook location. So we separate it out. There's an Ephrata tasting room, Old Republic tasting room, and now a new tasting room here in York, in West York. Which just opens up? Soon. Yeah. Next next week. By the time this podcast is live, we will be there. <laughs> okay. And out of here. So we're moving out of here. Uh, it's at the Manchester Crossroads. 
Uh, so it's a West Manchester mall that's been redone and kind of, you know, been birthed into this beautiful new outdoor mall instead of an indoor mall. Uh, we've teamed up with a restaurant called Dickie's Barbecue. Oh, okay. And Dickie's Barbecue and us have uh, kind of coexist or coexisting. In All right. So here's space. the deal. Look, we've been we've been talking for a while. So now I can see the look. You got barbecue, you got all these great spirits. You talked about mojitos, rum, single malt. You got all this going on. I hope Dickies understands that people are going to be staying a while. Yes. Because between the barbecue and what you're making, you got like all day. But we hope. Yeah, that's going to happen. It's really something new for us. Uh, we're not into the food business. And we see, you know, around the country, a lot of uh, tasting rooms incorporate food. And that's a great way to bring people in and, you know, give them something other than just spirits and, and whatnot. And it was important for us moving forward that we give or at least have an option for food. Um, the folks uh, over at Dickie's really do well with their barbecues. They're even um, designing a, a different menu for us and um, kind of snacks and stuff to go along with the drinks and stuff. So we're really looking forward to getting over there. Um, it's beautiful, a very, very nice, clean space. Um, the food and the way we will be able to work back and forth from food to booze and help each other's businesses, something that I'm looking forward to. And even further down the road, um, the distillery is moving out of here. Uh, we don't have enough space. I need more space for more fermenters, uh, bigger stills. and More all barrels things. for your single ball. More barrels. <laughs> a whole, there's a whole lot of uh, things we need more space for. Um, and eventually we'll probably put a, another tasting room you know, at that location. Probably not at first, but eventually. And I'd also like to have a few more tasting rooms around uh, the state. You know, Maybe Philadelphia. Who knows? There's a couple of Harrisburg. There's a couple of great places we feel we could really fit in our spirits with, especially the local food. When I think about Philadelphia, I'd have a tasting room in Philadelphia. I don't, I don't want to move to Philadelphia for any other reason. I think that the food in Philly is fantastic, you know, and so maybe that helps me create something down the road really go well with that. Yeah, you could start. You could start doing regional releases. Yeah. I mean, again small batch releases they were only releasing this one in our philadelphia tasting room and are only releasing this one in our effort tasting room again i love the creativity that you have bill the ideas are overflowing mm -hmm. um and look don and i just get to benefit from your creativity from from your um focus on flavor and enjoyment and and what we you know get to have as the end result I'm grateful for your time today. I, I know this is, we've, we've talked about this and getting together. It's a busy time for everybody, but this has been a, a treat for us. And, and again, we excel, exceeded our expectations. We, we're happy to have you on the podcast today. And just thank you so much for uh, joining us. Oh, glad to be here. And it's a treat for me too. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. We can't wait to see you again soon.